Welcome back to another episode of The Nth Dimension. Thanks so much as always for being here. Super excited about today's episode. And even though I'm pretty sure I say this every single time I talk to you guys, um, generally looking forward to this conversation that I have with Corinne Lance, a professor at DeLouse University in Canada, because we talk about all the climate lawsuits that we're seeing around the world where people are essentially taking their governments to court uh, to push them to reduce their carbon emissions. And, you know, on this podcast, we focus a lot on climate change issues for a number of reasons, mostly because it's such an intersectional issue and also because, let's face it, it is the issue of our generation and of our time. And if we don't address climate change, we're obviously going to face a lot of climate disasters, but we're also going to face a lot of economic and social disasters. And for this reason, I call it a very intersectional issue, and it is so imperative that we address it now. We're already late in addressing it, but it's important that we start now as soon as possible. But one of the things that I, for one, feel frustrated about when it comes to climate change and addressing climate change is that I feel countries have made a lot of promises in the sense that they've signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement, but I don't really know what incentive they have to actually follow through on those promises because nothing and no one is essentially holding them to account. In Canada, we're still one of the highest emitters of carbon. In Australia, um, Adani is pushing to build one of the largest coal mines in the world, even now when Australia is facing a lot of bushfires. But anyways, I digress. So in this episode, we talk about climate litigation and what that is looking like in a few countries like Denmark and the Netherlands and how other countries can benefit from these progressive ideas and hopefully build political will around addressing climate change. So in conversation with Corinne Lands at Delousey University, and here we go. Today is probably just as good a day as any other to be having this conversation because I believe that the Trudeau government has passed a legislation, and I'm just going to quickly read out this Bloomberg article. It's super short, like 150 words. The title is Trudeau Plot's Roadmap for Canada to Achieve Net Zero Emissions. And under the proposed law unveiled Thursday, that is today in Ottawa by Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, the government would be obliged to set targets every five years beginning in 2030. If it fails to reach them, it is required to assess the reasons for failure and spell out actions to remedy the situation to Parliament. So the conversation that we're having today, I think, is so key because one of the things that I have had issues with when it comes to the conversation around climate change and mitigation and addressing climate change is that it all just seems like promises and we don't really have what is the incentive holding the government to actually push these to push solutions and address climate mitigation so when i read your article uh which i would love for you to get into which talks about climate litigation um it actually proposes like firm action solutions for governments to take in order to tackle climate change so 
Can I ask you to talk a bit about that, starting from your article for the conversation and the Netherlands versus Urgenda case? Yeah, so I guess, like you, I share your frustration generally as, as a Canadian, uh, where we've had a lot of promises over the years, but not meeting those promises. This goes back uh, to provide a little bit of an anecdote. I remember flying home from a trip to the United States in 2002, and I picked up a copy of the Globe and Mail that they gave me, and the headline was, Canada ratifies the Kyoto Protocol. And so there, Canada had agreed to binding uh, emissions reductions. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was really happy to see that, especially coming from the US, and the US hadn't joined the Kyoto Protocol, and it was, had that sort of proud Canadian moment, as cliche as that sounds. But then over the years, that was met with a failure to take concrete action to meet those goals. We had that occurring under successive Canadian governments. We eventually withdrew from the Kyoto Protocol because it was clear that we were going to come nowhere near meeting our targets. And so this really- I'll be honest, I actually didn't know that. Yeah, no, the numbers are actually pretty, uh, pretty shocking. So we had agreed under the Kyoto Protocol to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions 6% from 1990 levels by 2012. And then in 2012, our emissions had actually increased by 18.5%. Funny that you bring that up because in my notes, I do have this statistic which says that we missed uh, the 2012 targets by 100 million tons. Yeah, and so there's this gap of 24.5%. And so we withdrew from the Kyoto Protocol because otherwise, if we were found in non-compliance, we would have had to buy credits on this international system. And we were the only country that had joined to then withdraw from the Kyoto Protocol. And so now we have this promise to reduce emissions 30% from 2005 levels and to reach this sort of promised land of net zero by 2050, which uh, up until, I guess we still don't have them, but we now have a promise to, to implement legislation to show how, how we'll get there. Uh, but So, sorry, just let me ask a few questions. Number one, like what does ratification mean? Like, can you break that down? And also, are you saying that we need to have legislation now in order to ensure that we meet 2050 targets? Is that part of the Kyoto Protocol now? And so the Kyoto Protocol is now sort of a thing of the past. Uh, it's had its day in the sun and it's been replaced subsequently with the Paris Agreement. And so this might be getting a bit too much into international environmental law, but now instead of having these binding targets that Kyoto had imposed, mm -hmm. the Paris Agreement has countries set their own targets that are known as a nationally, nationally determined contribution. Okay. And so Canada has agreed to do this, but there's no binding enforcement mechanism. And this gets into a bit of the weeds of international law, but when, you, when Canada ratifies a treaty, that means that it is formally accepted an obligation on the international level to be to to meet this this international uh, target under the Kyoto Protocol, and then now certain obligations under the Paris Agreement. But what happens domestically is that uh, treaties that Canada has ratified need to be implemented, usually by passing legislation domestically, for them to have binding effect within our court system and within our domestic sphere. And so you have this gap between international obligations. So even if Canada had ratified this binding target internationally, 
it is unlikely that Canadians could try to hold them to that uh, domestically if those obligations are not incorporated domestically through legislation. So what we have here with these, this climate litigation is essentially trying to find some way of imposing a binding legal obligation on Canada at the domestic level so that Canadians can go to court and say, Canada, you're violating, or, or a province as the case may be, you're violating my, my legal right or this legal right that is enforceable domestically. That's so interesting. So intuitively, I'm, you know, keeping a lot of the political drama in mind when I ask this. I feel like when Justin Trudeau, being the representative of Canada at the international level, goes to the Paris, uh, Paris Agreement and says, yes, Canada ratifies. But I feel like maybe that is being, is so, is that decision being made after having a conversation at the provincial level? Because now we see that at home in Canada, we have certain provincial governments not really complying with the federal, what the federal, federal government may want to impose in terms of uh, environmental and climate standards. So is that decision at the international level being taken independently of provincial governments? And is it to, you know, is it like a political theater at the international stage when they do make these agreements? Or am I being cynical? <laughs> and maybe slightly cynical, but you're 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 actually narrowing in on a, an important aspect of how we ratify treaties, and it's the power of the executive and the executive alone. So that would be federal cabinet and the prime minister to uh, to ratify treaties. It's their unwritten constitutional right to do that. But the politically, it can be untenable if you don't get the provinces on board, and then legally. Uh, even though you can ratify a treaty internationally and you again, you have now this international obligation. Uh, if the subject matter of the treaty falls under provincial jurisdiction, then it's up to the provinces to actually implement that treaty and the federal parliament doesn't have the power to implement it. And so if you don't have the provinces on board before you ratify, then you can have issues with implementing it domestically, and there's no obligation for the provinces to go along with what the executive federally has decided to do. And so to some extent, and so usually what the government will do, uh, the federal executive will do is they'll negotiate with the provinces first before they sign an international treaty okay. that can affect pro provincial rights uh, so that they don't, so that they're not met with that enforcement gap. Uh, and then here, Climate change is a very political issue in Canada, and we see these, these various challenges from, from different provinces trying to, to hamper Ottawa's efforts at, at having the, the, the price on carbon. Mm -hmm. And so it can, it can be complicated for a number of factors. You're right in saying that it is a political issue, and there's so much, you know, there's so much that we can go into this conversation. I guess like what I'm afraid of is climate change just being reduced to a political issue to win elections. So I feel that in 2019, because the biggest voting block was young Canadians between 18 to 35, and because climate change is the issue of our generation and that age group and the issue of our time, I think 
all polit political parties knew that they cannot win the election if they don't make climate change a prime topic of their agenda. So that did happen. But is it just being, I guess this is where climate litigation is so interesting because are we just coming to a point where it will be an election topic, but governments are like, what is holding governments accountable to make sure that their obligations and their promises are being met? So in 2019, Trudeau declared a climate emergency, but then the very next day he approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So there's so much like irony and just opposing actions taking place. Yeah, and so you, you make a good point there where I think the reason why we're seeing these lawsuits now are because we're having people that have been fed up for so long, since 2002, uh, when we ratified the Kyoto Protocol and we make all these lofty promises and then we don't meet uh, you know, we're, we're talking the talk, but not, not walking the talk uh, or walk the walk. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're making grand promises and not doing the heavy lifting that's needed to actually meet those promises. And so I think, so, you know, there's different ways of holding the government to account for these provinces. You break them and you might get voted out in the next election. So you have this political risk, but that so far hasn't seemed to be enough to actually spur concrete change in action. So instead, now we're seeing people trying to go to the courts and have the courts recognize for the first time this legal obligation on the government to do more, to actually do its part in the global fight against climate change. So even if we don't have legally binding targets, the incentive for countries and governments to work towards this could be responding to the will of the people, because you, otherwise you could avoid losing elections uh, on a global level to be good global citizens, recognizing that we're facing a tragedy of the commons. And if we don't do something, uh, we're all going to end up suffering for it. And so we have those sort of soft motivating factors, but now people seeing this continued in action are trying to bring lawsuits to force governments to do more. And that's what was sort of groundbreaking with the agenda decision in the Netherlands is that they were actually successful in doing that. So can you break that case down for us? Because I'm not sure how many people know about this. And I only found out about it recently. And I feel like I do follow climate news a bit. So let's break that case down a bit and why it's so important for Canada. The, the case was brought by this organization called uh, their Agenda Foundation. And that's a combination of the words urgent and agenda. Oh, and nice. so they had thought that the Netherlands wasn't doing enough to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. And so in 2013, this shows how slowly the wheels of justice can move. Same thing in Canada, it takes years. Uh, in 2013, they brought a lawsuit to try to force the Netherlands to do more. And so the Netherlands had previously committed to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions 30% from 1990 levels. But by the end of, of uh, uh, 2020, and then it lowered this target to 20%. Mm -hmm. And then Urgenda was saying, this isn't enough. You need to have a more robust target and said that it needed to be between 25 to, to 40% from 1990 levels. And so they, they took this broad approach to the claim and said that the Netherlands was failing to protect its citizens based on this negligence claim. And then the more novel approach that it was taking was saying that, that the failure to do its fair share was violating the human rights of residents of the Netherlands. And so they said that this violated the, the, 
the, ne the Netherlands residents' right to life under Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights and, our, and the right to private and family life, which is Article 8, but we don't have a, an equivalent really to that in Canada. And so in 2015, two years later, the Hague District Court found that the government had, was, was liable, but it was based on negligence principles. And it, it said that the claim couldn't be successful on human rights grounds. But then the Court of Appeal reversed that part of the decision and said the claim could be successful on human rights grounds. And it ordered the government to reduce its emissions uh, by a minimum of 25% uh, by the end of 2020. And then this was, uh, was subject to appeal to the Supreme Court and the Dutch Supreme Court upheld the decision and said that the wow. Netherlands uh, was violating the right to life of its citizens. And as a requirement, it set this target and of 25% by the end of 2020. That gave them one year to do it because this decision came out in December of 2019. And uh, that's addressing 25% of their targets by in one year. Uh, so it's not, so it's, they need to reduce their emissions 25% from 90, 1990 levels uh, by the end of 2020. And I'm not sure wow. exactly how far the Netherlands had, had gotten to reaching that goal already, but it's still, this decision was the first where a court said that based on human rights, concerns a government needs to act against climate change and it set a target and a timeline to do that so sometimes that that it's it's quite quite groundbreaking yeah definitely and the fact that it took 2013 to 2020 that's seven years my god but sometimes societies can be so complicated because i mean if we sit down and think about how climate change impacts our rights ver on various levels like it seems so uh, straightforward, but it's interesting that s such a straightforward lawsuit can take seven years. But this, I'm, I know nothing about law, so I'm coming at it from a very layperson perspective. But I, I believe there are. So, 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 what does this mean for, I guess, Canadian, the Canadian climate litigation scene? And I believe that we also have a few cases that are in court. And did we? Am I right in believing that we have actually now one? The case in Ontario, which was uh, presented by seven young Ontarians who took the Ford government to court, saying that you have reduced our environmental standards. And Ford then countered that, saying that, no, I haven't. And now they've won that case. I guess just to start at the beginning there, what does this case mean for Canada? So right now, it's not binding at all in Canada because it's a decision from the Netherlands, but what it can do is it can help to bolster the arguments of Canadian climate as they're, they, they're the so-called climate justice plaintiffs. So these people uh, who are bringing lawsuits trying to seek the government to, to hold the government to account uh, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so, but it can be influential in Canadian, it can potentially be influential if our courts follow similar reasoning. And so like the, the reasons why the court got to the decision that it did in the Netherlands. And you're right that uh, there are at least four pending Canadian climate change cases that are based on human rights. And the one that you were talking about in Ontario is uh, Mather versus Ontario. They haven't won it yet. They've, oh, my bad. They've, they've gotten over an initial uh, hurdle because the Ontario government before 
the case has gone to trial, it brought a motion saying that this case should be dismissed because there's no reasonable prospect of success because of, and then this host of reasons, primarily because climate change uh, policies aren't something that courts should review. Uh, and, and so it made that argument and the judge said that, that no, it's not clear that there's no reasonable prospect of success. And so it said that the, the litigation can move forward. We just had a case going the opposite way uh, out in the, in, in the federal court level. Uh, it was filed in Vancouver. Uh, that was LaRose and Canada, LaRose versus Canada. And so in that case, the judge decided that this was not a matter that the courts could review. It's the, the terminology is not justiciable. Uh, and so it said that that litigation, it, it dismissed the litigation, struck the pleadings, and that's likely going to be appealed. So these are both like- On what grounds though? And so what's going to happen, so what, so this is part of the reason why these cases can take so long is that you have these procedural maneuvers that can be made to try to get the cases thrown out before they go to trial. Mm -hmm. and so the federal government and the Ontario government tried to do that. And, and then those decisions uh, about whether the case should be dismissed before it goes to trial is something that could be subject to appeal, saying that the, the judge got it wrong for, for whatever errors of law the party alleged had occurred. And so we, it remains to be seen, like the, the litigants in La Rose say that they will be appealing. And I don't know if they filed their appeal yet. It's just been over uh, under a month since that decision came out. And I'm not sure if the Ontario government will appeal this decision. Chances are it, it will. And then what could happen is that this will take years then to work its way through the appeal process, potentially all the way to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court could say whether something is capable of being litigated, which would then send it finally back down to be heard at trial. Public funds are being used for those people. <laughs> yeah, and it's like politically, that's one thing that might weigh on Ontario, the Ontario government's mind when it's deciding whether to appeal is it kind of looks bad when you're going to court and telling kids that they, they can't bring a lawsuit. But at the same time, uh, they think that this is a matter that, that shouldn't be subject to the courts and should be something decided by elected officials, but which what? is it. I guess that's a very key distinction that I want to draw out with you. Where does the role of elected officials end and where does the role of the judiciary begin? Because if someone is going to court saying by building pipelines or by not reducing emissions, sea levels rising, blah, 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 Canada being the second fastest warming country on the planet, you are disturbing my right to a good life and right to a safe life. So on like, how does this not seem like grounds to go to court and for courts to get involved? Yeah, I'm confused. Yeah. And so it, this, these cases really highlight uh, the difficult distinction sometimes that can be made between different branches of government. And so we have three branches of government, the, the executive, so it's like cabinet, uh, and then uh, the legislature, and then you have the judiciary, uh, and the judiciary is there to interpret and apply the law. 
but things can get messy because we have uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is a bill of rights that give Canadians rights. And part of the role of judges is to review the constitutionality. The Charter is part of our constitution. And so the judges review whether laws that are passed are constitutional or, or government actions that are taken are constitutional. So that's where you get into this argument that can be made that, that government inaction uh, on climate change can threaten someone's right to life contrary to section seven of the charter. And the, the problem uh, is that courts, they're, they're, you know, we have elected officials for a reason. They, in our democ democracy, they reflect in theory, the will of the people and they're supposed to- In to, theory. Yeah, <laughs> reflect the will of the people, pass laws and, and set policies and set policy priorities. And so you get into this issue of where is that dividing line between something that's reviewable by the court and something that's not because it's too much of a, a policy and a political question. And so courts basically grapple with trying to stay in their lane, essentially, and ensure that they're performing their judicial function as this branch of government and not straying too far into policy and political questions. And so the governments of Ontario and Canada have been trying to argue that climate change is a political question. It involves the government having to make difficult choices about what steps to take and what money to spend and what laws to pass and that it's sort of too complicated and too political for the courts to be involved with that where you have the litigants trying to say that that the government by by doing this or failing to do that is violating their constitutional rights right he a, a difficult difficult thing to to grasp on what's what's inherently too political to be reviewed by by the courts but in making certain decisions can't the court actually set the tone for political action or or move the needle on political will because where i'm coming at it from is let's say that you know someone goes goes to court saying that by not taking action on climate change um, my my rights are being violated. The court says, "Yes, you're right. We are now saying that the court that the government for the next four years has to reduce their emissions to by X number of amount." Like this is a very hypothetical scenario, obviously. But can they not set the tone for political action by uh, by how they judge certain cases? Yeah, so they can. And so that's sort of the approach that was taken by the court in Urgenda. And so the government in the Netherlands tried to make similar arguments that Canada and Ontario are making, saying that this is a matter that should be up, the elected officials should decide if this is for the legislative branch of government to determine and not the, the judicial. And what the Supreme Court of the Netherlands said is that, is that what we are required to do is to ensure that the government's actions uh, are in line with its obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights. This is what we're doing here. We found that your target violates the right to life. And as a result, you need to meet this target. 
by this timeline. But what we're going to do is leave it up to you to decide how you do that. And so in its view, it was ruling on the constitutionality of the government's actions while still leaving the politicians the discretion to figure out how to meet their obligations. That seems fair to me. <laughs> so that is, is sort of the approach that if, and you know, it's, I, I shouldn't pretend to be able to look into a crystal ball and know what, what could happen, but that might be an approach that Canadian courts could take. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen in the litigation in Canada so far is that, so we have in Mather, the, the Ontario case, the, the judge who was looking at this motion to, to dismiss uh, said... Sorry, and what's the Mather case again? Is that the that's one the Ontario, in Ontario? Yeah, the Ontario. The young, the seven young people. Yeah, that's right. Okay, gotcha. And so in that case, uh, the the judge said that this matter can be reviewed by the courts. It is justiciable. I'm not going to, to throw it out yet. And, and then we had also, there was a, a court case in Quebec, uh, Environment Jeunesse, uh, or like Youth Environment, where they were attempting to get the claim certified as a class action for basically all Quebecers under the age of 35. The court said that it it wouldn't certify it as a class action saying that it didn't fit the criteria to have this group group claim. But what it said is that the matter is, is justiciable. So we have two courts now saying that it's, it's in theory something that courts can review, but then in La Rose, which is a federal court case coming out of Vancouver, they said it wasn't. But if you look at the, the underlying claims, I, Jeunesse, uh, Environment Jeunesse and Mather, the Ontario case, they are making more of a claim of saying that the target uh, isn't reasonable and it threatens people's, people's constitutional rights. Whereas in La Rose, they had highlighted what, what was called the impugned conduct of the federal government. And it had included things like approving, acquiring Trans Mountain, and approving different pipelines and things. And so they were raising potentially taking more issue with a lot of different government actions. And in that case, the, the judge said that this matter wasn't reviewable because of the, the breadth and the scope of the claim. And the judge had noted the case out of Quebec and said, even though it's not binding here, uh, they had suggested that if the claim in La Rose was more narrow, it possibly could have been considered reviewable. What is the claim in La Rose? So in, in La Rose, it's, they're arguing that, they're, that the government's um, actions are uh, violating the, the right to life under Section 7 of the Charter, as well as Section 15 for equality rights, because this is a claim uh, brought by young people. Mm -hmm. They're also alleging that there's this public, this is a new sort of legal claim. They're alleging that there's a public trust doctrine where the federal government is supposed to be responsible for taking care of our environment, basically, on behalf of, of Canadians. And so they say that the government's greenhouse gas emissions, the actions that is taken to reduce greenhouse gas emissions have been insufficient. It has set an unsuitable greenhouse gas emissions target. It has failed to meet this target. 
and that it was actively participating in supporting the development of the fossil fuel industry and that it was incentivizing fossil fuel exploration. And so it was a pretty broad claim trying to show, I think what they were trying to show was all the ways that the government and its decisions can affect climate change, but it ran the risk of making the court feel like if it ruled in their favor, it was getting too much into the nitty gritty of policy decisions. Whereas in Urgenda, rather than taking this broad approach and highlighting all of these, these alleged failures of the government, they took issue with the target that was set and said it wasn't sufficient. So then that leaves the, the court with more room to have this, this middle approach of saying that, okay, the, the target itself is, is unconstitutional because it violates these human rights, but we're going to leave it up to you for how you get, get to this, this suitable target. And so that's potentially something that we could see play out in Canadian litigation. Uh, but it's, again, I don't have a crystal ball to see where this <laughs> would go, but uh, I think that following that there's a possibility that Canadian courts could follow the same approach where they say that what they're doing is reviewing uh, the target to see whether it violates charter rights, but then leaving it up to the politicians and elected officials to determine what steps need to be taken to get to a greenhouse gas emissions target that doesn't violate people's rights. Gotcha. And you know I mean? Yeah. And what about the, so there are two questions that I have regarding number one, climate change is such an intersectional topic, right? Like there's the conversation of emission reduction, but then there's also the conversation around different environmental standards. And for example, if we look at the fashion industry, like they're contributing to degrading the environment and causing a spike in carbon emissions in a in a different way than fossil the fossil fuel industry in a different way than the transportation industry so how do we how do we manage all these different facets that are causing ooh cute kitty by the way <laughs> that are causing cli climate change in different ways but Oh, I lost my train of thought. So how do we manage different facets of our society and economy that are causing climate change and get courts to intervene or politicians to take action under, under um, our charter of rights or freedom, I guess? I'm not sure what the legal definition would be, but uh, under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I guess. So how do we manage all these different aspects of society that are contributing to environmental degradation and in doing so causing contributing to climate change well i think we have to keep in mind the role of our courts and our the limits of our charter rights um so the charter only applies to governments uh and so it wouldn't apply to the fashion industry but i guess the argument could be made that that once you impose on potentially on the Canadian government or provincial government, this requirement to meet a certain uh, standard that then it's up to them to determine how to regulate industries to get there. And so then it, 
that's then we're sort of coming full circle and back to this political will issue. And so if we have people clamoring and writing their, their elected official to say, hey, the, you know, the fashion industry should be regulated in this way to mitigate its negative environmental effects, then that could be something, one way of getting the government to act on that or using the whole dollar is your vote sort of thing and only the buying from companies that, that are more sustainable in their practices. And so there's different ways to get at, at those diffuse environmental effects. But for... Uh, and could we take, could I take, let's say, H&M to court and... Is, do, do, have there been cases where an individual has taken an, a corporation to court to challenge their sustainability goals or their supply chain? Uh, so you wouldn't be able to bring a charter claim against uh, a, a company like that because it's not the government and it's not obliged to, uh, to respect charter rights. But um, I know there have been, and I, I'm not familiar with them, there are lawsuits against corporations, and I think there's quite a few in the states where there are claims related to environmental factors. And so I would, I haven't read them, but I would suspect that those would be more of a tort law-based claim and negligence and saying that, that you are injuring me because of, of your, your actions and you're therefore liable to me, but it wouldn't involve uh, litigation under the charter. And what about Canada's global responsibility? So there's the whole big can of worms of, you know, your fair share of um, emission reduction because industrialized nations, you know, when they were in the stage of development, they obviously contributed a lot to carbon emissions and we weren't really having this conversation back in the 1990s. Well, we were, but on the fringes. Um, as as robustly as we are having it now. So less developed nations are kind of catching up to countries like Canada, um, and they're obviously emitting more targets. So why don't I ask you this by talking about um, what Denmark has done in passing their climate legislation? Or, I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but I think we spoke about it um, when we were communicating back and forth. But one of the things that really stuck out to me in that legislation is this, and I'll read it out to you. Denmark's new law has a commitment to support other countries in cutting their emissions, and it requires climate change to be integrated into foreign development aid and trade policy, and for the climate impacts of Danish imports and consumption to be considered. And I think this is so key and integral because like I just mentioned in the um, supply chain of some fashion industries, for example, and I use that as just as an example, but if we are to mitigate climate change, it has to, number one, take place with other countries. And I guess that's why we have treaties like the Paris Agreement. But if Canada just passes laws at home, but if we can continue to uh, take advantage of weak environmental and labor laws abroad, then we are still contributing to climate change. So how do we manage our global responsibility at home by also helping other countries? So that's a, a really big question. And Complicated. Again, it comes back to the whole issue of political will. I God see. damn it. <laughs> and it is, because we have to have 
have the government of, of all these countries have an incentive to do its fair share and actually take meaningful action. And the, the, the Denmark's law sounds extremely progressive and goes well beyond, uh, beyond what's required at an international level. And it's, it's a progressive country. And if, if enough people at ballot boxes made this an issue, perhaps many countries around the world would follow in Denmark's footsteps. Uh, and so what we have on an international level is trees, not to sound too cynical, they often can come down to a bit of a, a lowest common denominator because they're trying to find an agreement that a sufficient number of countries are satisfied with that they'll sign on to. And so you have things like the Paris Agreement and the Kyoto Protocol before it trying to take into account this issue of fairness and the fact that developed countries have benefited significantly by being able to industrialize without worrying about their climate, or their climate effects and their greenhouse gas emissions, where now with developing countries, is it fair to say you need to, to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions when we, you know, these wealthy countries were, were able to develop in air quotes uh, without needing to worry about this. And so you have, <clears throat> treaties trying to allow for uh, technology transfers from more wealthier countries to developing countries and those sorts of things. And then you have, but you have people, and then imposing potentially no targets or less stringent targets on developing countries in recognition of, the, of this whole fairness gap between, between different countries. But then that gives ammunition for people saying, well, you know, these countries uh, are allowed to continue emitting. Why do we need to do this? And unfortunately, it comes down to this, a bit of a, an assessment of what's fair. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a tough, it's a really tough thing. And it's a, it is, I think, in my view, uh, essentially this, this quintessential tragedy of the commons, where we have this shared resource of the earth and our climate, and we all benefit from being able to emit greenhouse gases into it, but then we're also all negatively affected when it degrades, but nobody's legally responsible for it. And so it's going to take countries following in the steps of Denmark and needing to, to take action, even though that goes beyond their technical legal obligations in recognition of the fact that this is a pressing issue. It's an emergency. Mm -hmm. that countries really need to act on and yeah. so the law like one of the things like the law is a very imperfect tool i find for achieving change litigation is expensive it's time consuming emotionally draining and it can be uncertain uh and we wouldn't need this type or plaintiffs wouldn't feel the need to bring these types of claims if they were seeing concrete action by elected officials and so i think to some extent there's this measure of, of not, desperation might be the wrong term, but people are getting to the point where they're saying, you know, this was a major election issue and argue in, in some people would argue that the government's still not taking fast enough or concrete enough action on it. So if it's not going to work at the ballot box, let's try through the courts. Interesting that you say that you call the law an imperfect tool because you know, while we've been talking and I'm comprehending a lot of what you're saying, I was actually thinking, hey, like, bec 
and you know caveat that i know very little about the law like i you know know very little about the legal system but it seems like a scientific way to move the political will and i was like one of the things that i get so frustrated frustrated with is the lack of political will and the fact that it is all we need to get things done whether it is climate change i believe in ubi so ubi and other progressive issues right so so I thought like the way I was coming at it from is, hey, if I can't, if as an individual, I can't move, you know, Trudeau and his cabinet's hand to do X, Y, and Z, and I can't force dirty corporations to change the way they function, I can take them to court, you know, and that's like a power I have and other individuals, other Canadians have to challenge their politicians and elected officials and corporations to change their ways so i was looking at it from as um an a tool of empowerment but i guess it is a bit I, I think it can be both and we'll see sort of what happens with this litigation and it might be you know maybe we will have a groundbreaking decision coming out of canada there are some hurdles to doing that uh and so you know questions can be asked about whether these plaintiffs will end up being successful, uh, even the ones the ones that have passed that hurdle and not had their their lawsuits thrown out already, um, because we it's a novel claim and will require the courts to go beyond their past interpretations of the right to life, and so it's a there it is an uphill battle I think to to get courts to rule in their favor but it's not necessarily an insurmountable task. Gotcha. So I feel like this has become a pattern on my podcast where I tend to close off the conversation with a super journalistic-y question. Um, so it, it's become a pattern. I'm just going to roll with it. Let me ask you this. As someone who teaches uh, law and also studies law, are you hopeful or where are you drawing your optimism from whether Canada will be able to live up to its image of um, an actor that is trying to mitigate the climate crisis? Because it's a very doom and gloom scenario at the moment. It, it is. And I, this is making me think back to, so I did a master's degree in law and I took international environmental law and the professor's last uh, lecture was so disheartening and she basically said oh, no. as we've learned international environmental law is basically a complete failure and <laughs> it's pretty depressing now and so go out I, into the world <laughs> again uh, it's a tough I'm hopeful you know seeing in the, that was news to me the, the Bloomberg uh, bit that you read at the beginning about laying out this plan and how to get there I think that's a great development and it gives me hope that our elected officials are going to take this matter seriously and they're going to start doing the work that needs to be done now and should have been done a, a long time ago and again, like these lawsuits will take years to work their way through the system. And what I'm really hopeful uh, will happen is that they'll end up being thrown out because they're just a moot point. Because by the time they get to trial, the government can say, hey, we have this target and we've made it legally binding upon ourselves. And these are the steps we're going to get there. These are reasonable steps to get there and we're doing our fair share. And so that might be the 
the optimist inside of me hoping that these lawsuits will end up being unnecessary. But if we continue to do the same thing that we've done in the past, or we make these lofty goals and fail to meet them, then there is a possibility that this litigation might be successful. And from an international law perspective, because that is my area of expertise, the more decisions that we have internationally like agenda that say that inadequate action on climate change threatens the right to life, the more ammunition our plaintiffs will have and the more, the more likely it could be that they'll be successful uh, in this litigation because part of the way that our charter is supposed to be interpreted is that our, our rights in the charter that have a corresponding international human right are supposed to be interpreted so that our charter uh, at least meets, if not exceeds, the international definition. So if we start having courts around the world interpreting the European Convention on Human Rights or the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights, which also contains the right to life, if we start having these international instruments being, being interpreted as, as saying that in, inadequate action on climate change threatens the right to life and governments have to have you know, meaningful targets, blah, 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 then that can bolster our plaintiff's positions. Because mm -hmm. right now, the way that the right to life has been interpreted uh, makes these claims, these litigants face a, a pretty uphill battle because they're going to have to convince the court to interpret the right to life uh, in a more broad way than it has in the past by recognizing that climate change is an imminent threat to, and that the government needs to act when it's not the one that's directly depriving someone of their life. Yeah, and I, and I hope that the case, and I think you pointed this out in your article, and I hope that the case in the Netherlands and the fact that Denmark is now considering including climate change into their constitution, which has only been changed twice in the past hundred years, I hope that gives um, people around the world ammunition to be able to, you know, take these uh, challenges to court and, and come out winning. And ultimately, you know, you also mentioned this more power to the people. If we see that governments are not acting in their four years, then we have the power to boot them out. So if nothing else, you know, power to the people as always. But Corinne, thank you so much for joining me today. I had such a pleasure talking to you. And this was like such an interesting way to come at climate law and policy, which I don't see us talking about a lot, but hopefully that's going to change. So truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Sometimes I feel like I'm a broken record because I feel like I've said this a lot, and I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way when it comes to climate change, that it is everybody's problem. And we may have created borders, but let's face it, when we think of the earth, it is, it, it, it is all of us and all of us living on it and sometimes you know sometimes when i'm staring up into the sky and i look at stars like we are literally one spaceship floating in the universe and all of us all seven billion of us are on this earth together so it humbles me to remind myself that there are no demarcations in our oceans and in the air and what happens in one country does affect the other and this is totally anecdotal but when i i live in canada and my folks live in india and some you know every time well Sometimes when we talk on the phone, we often ask each other, hey, how's the weather? Small talk 101, right? Interestingly enough, 
We found some patterns between, weather patterns between Canada and India, and you might laugh and you might scoff. Somehow, anecdotally speaking, and sometimes when it's raining here, it just so happens that it has rained in Delhi, and when it's a, a bit cold here, then it's cold in Delhi. And it's, it's just interesting that I have found that the weather patterns between Canada and Delhi are linked. Of course, there is no factual basis to this. This is simply anecdotal. But it just reminds me and humbles me that we are way more connected than we think so. For all of you interested in climate change, climate solution, I do urge you to check out the laws that Denmark has passed to mitigate climate change. And they're so interesting. Not only have they set targets that they have to meet in terms of emission reduction, but they have also set safeguards in play that ensure that politicians are not just in it for the four years, but they will be held accountable. And every year the government will need to find a majority parliamentary approval of its global and national climate strategy. So they will be held to account every year by the parliament. And if, and if it's found that they have not lived up to their promises, then their parliament, uh, then their government, sorry, will be dissolved. So often politicians and elected officials have a very short term window and they are acting in the short term and essentially, and I may be cynical here, but to but to strengthen the, their power and they're only thinking for the next four years. Um, but we need to be able to hold them accountable and they can't just come around around election time making promises but not delivering on them. And as I mentioned in the podcast, Denmark is also assuring that they uh, meet their fair share of carbon emission reduction, ensuring that they are um, ensuring that they are reducing their targets based on 1990 levels and also helping other countries meet their goals through trade policies. And so Denmark is a super progressive country, obviously, we know that, but they are also actively recognizing that climate change is not only their issue, but a global issue and that we are in it together. So I do urge you guys to check out their policies. One article that I found super helpful was on BBC Future Planet. It is called The Law That Could Make Climate Change Illegal, and it really breaks down the whole uh, law that they have enacted. I know it can be a doom-gloom scenario when it comes to climate change, but I feel like there are a lot of people doing a lot of positive things in the world, and we're gonna make it out of this and we are gonna find people from the ground from grassroots level are gonna find a way up i am sure of that so on that note thank you so much for listening to another episode of the nth dimension grateful as always please do follow me on twitter i am at underscore nth dimension also on instagram under the same handle would love to chat more online so Till next time, peace.